Could a real Death Star exist? If so, how much would it cost? How long ago and how far away did the Star Wars galaxy exist? Could we ever really become Jedi? We're breaking down all these questions and more this week. You don't have to be a Jedi or a scientist to appreciate the fun and informative analysis of this week's episode. So prepare your mind to make the jump to light speed and find out the facts about the science of Star Wars. How many times do I have to tell you I talk first? The podcast is called Han Talks First. That means I start. It's my show. How's it going, guys? It's Han, back for another week's episode of Han Talks First, where we talk about Star Wars. And this week, we're going behind the science of Star Wars. That's right. This is going to be a really fun episode. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, I'm going to get more into it. Uh, but first, I want to wish you a happy July 15th. Um, hope you're all having a good Monday to start off your work week. If you're uh, driving to work, listening to this episode, take your time because this is going to be a good one and I want you to be here through the entire length of it because this is a really, really fun one for me. Now, the majority of the information I will be talking about is from a book called The Science of Star Wars. Scientific Facts Behind the Force, Space Travel, and More, and it is written by Mark Brake and John Chase. I read this book twice in one sit-down. It's, it's really that good. Um, and I always wanted to break it down on podcast form so that more people can hear about it. So I recently went back and read it again, and each time, it's just really fascinating. Um, these two guys have really dedicated a lot of time and research into the making of this book. For example, Mark Brake is the first scientist and a science fiction degree holder. Um, and John Chase is a freelance science communicator with an honors degree in aerospace and engineering and a master's degree in communicating science. So uh, they both know what they're talking about, and I'm going to be using a lot of prompts from the book talking about what they relate back to science in real world from Star Wars, and I'm also going to throw in some of my own thoughts and opinions and uh, just give it all out there. I'm mainly doing this because I really want more people to know about this book. It's really good. Uh, like I said in the intro, you don't have to be a Star Wars fan or a scientist to appreciate it. It's really a little something for everybody. It's it's really fascinating. So I'd like to jump right in. I feel like this might be a two-parter episode because there's a lot of stuff in this book. Um, and I really want to cover the majority of it. So if you're listening to this episode and I don't finish through the entire book... Uh, just expect a part two in a later week, but I promise to get it done in the month of July. So, let's start off first talking about the Death Star. We all know the Death Star 
introduced to us in the very first Star Wars, 1977's A New Hope. And honestly, a, a fascinating idea to put into a science fiction movie. Uh, just one elite group of um, people with power over the entire universe and to make sure they hold that power and uh, rank and other people abide. They have this super weapon that will destroy a planet that does not follow their regulations or methods. It's kind of scary, right? Especially when we talk about uh, the reality behind it and how it can relate back to our world. But without, without just jumping into it, we have to discuss something called SDI, which the authors talk about in this book. That is Strategic Defense Initiative. Now, before I tell you what that is, if you don't already know implied by the title, I do want to mention that a lot of the stuff in this book is very detail-oriented and has a lot of context, and I will not be able to cover all of it because this is a podcast and most of it is done via memory of reading the book and just a few notes that I've taken during reading. So if I get something wrong or you feel like you're not catching up or understanding, I apologize. I'm going to do my best to get the point across, but just know that there's a lot more to these topics. And if you're interested you should totally get the book. Again, it's called The Science of Star Wars by Mark Brake and John Chase. So, SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative. Uh, it's a real thing. In our government, uh, that is the U.S., that's where, that's where I am. If you're listening out of country, uh, you probably have something similar with a different name attached to it. But it's pretty much just a defense initiative for um, making sure that threats can be tackled if acted upon. For example, a, uh, a, a flash attack, um, somebody invading or threatening the country with missiles, bombs, whatever. Um, this is just to prevent them and or a attack them when they are also on the move. Um, I'll get more into it. Uh, I just want to give some background about our history, the U.S. history, So, and, of course, global history. But during the late 50s began the space race. If you don't know what that is, I feel bad for you. You should know. Um, but it's where all the major countries of the world uh, were trying to make it so they can get the first man into space. Uh, during the times of the original trilogy, which was late 70s, early 80s, NASA had actually abandoned space missions and the majority of sending people to space, um, sending out probes, just anything that had to do with it. Um, it was kind of getting old. Uh, the space race was kind of over, so everything was kind of scrapped. Shortly after that, um, at, shortly after the time after Star Wars came out, um, the popularity became uh, 
so so high and invested in people wanting to know more about space and sentient life, etc. And it became popularized again and people started taking space travel and weaponizing of space seriously again. And then NASA opened it back up, just missions and uh, space travel and stuff like that. Um, now, because of this, it created paranoia for the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. Uh, more so after the first Soviet rocket had launched its first human into space. So all of, all of this kind of goes together. The idea and ambition was to have a super weapon aimed to protect the U.S. from attacks from space. Uh, examples that I gave earlier, or such as a missile traveling through space could be disengaged, while on land. A very relevant and quite scary quote said from the late President uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was, control of space means control of the world. There is something more than the ultimate weapon. That is the ultimate position, the position of total control over Earth that lives somewhere in space. Let's think about that. He's saying that if you want to control something, you, it has to be in your grasp. And the idea that being in space gives you control over that property gives you the ultimate weapon. Uh, protection and defense and also strikes. Uh, this, this is very Palpatine-esque. It, sound, it almost sounds like a quote from Revenge of the Sith. Uh, Palpatine wants to create a Death Star, the ultimate weapon. That gives you the ultimate position of power and gives you total control over the Earth. Now, for Palpatine, it wasn't just the Earth. It was all planets because this is an intergalactic uh, movie. I just think that's really a really interesting quote. So that's a little background context of the Death Star. So the idea of a Death Star is really not that far off of ideas humans have had in the past or today. So... Let's talk about the what it would take to get a Death Star. Is it possible? It is possible. But it would be very, very difficult and a, one hell of a challenge to achieve. So let's talk about the size of it. Um, they mention it's the size of a moon. It is about 75 miles in diameter. It's pretty big. So in order to cover that surface, you would need 134 quadrillion tons of steel. Now, this would throw the imperial treasurer in a bind or make him go mad crazy because the cost of that much steel would equal to $852 quadrillion. Have, have you ever heard of somebody even saying that word quadrillion before? I mean, it's insane. And this is just if we're talking about a unit of cost that we measure our currency by. So don't know about Star Wars. I mean, there is a whole banking clan that handles this, and we do know that the, emperor, uh, the empire had control over it. 
Now, that's just the cost of the steel. We, we, we also have to consider the production rates, uh, electric, plumbing, gravity, uh, the, the weaponizing of the unit, um, and uh, generators, uh, not to mention um, uh, the, the shipping cost. Just to, and if just pr- producing the pre-production of this weapon uh, bat- slash battle station, if you just to produce this amount of steel, you you would need eight hundred thousand years to make it. Uh, think about that too. So, if the Star Wars galaxy runs on the same unit of time measurement that we do, it would take 800,000 years to just produce that much steel. So let's talk about who built it, why they built it, how they built it. So the Death Star was constructed above Geonosis. Geonosis is the planet we visited in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, where Obi-Wan went on his spy mission, he followed Jango, and that's where um, the Clone Wars began. And Geonosians didn't have that much steel on the planet, being that it's a desert hive. So you'd have to ship your resources. So not only do you have to create the steel, but you have to ship it to Geonosis because they built it above the planet. You can't build it on ground if it's bigger. It has to be built in space. Um, they did build it using slave labor. Uh, some of which were Wookiees. Actually, majority of were Wookiees. Um, we see that a lot in the Star Wars world. We see it in Clone Wars. I saw it in Solo, too. I wish they'd have gone more into it in Solo because it's it's a big part of the Star Wars world just that they use Wookiees as for slave labor, um, probably because they live longer. Um, they're much more stronger than humans. Um, and they're also not as civilized as the human or the basic race. Um, you know, they, they don't speak basic and they, they, they live in jungles. So it's very easy for someone to come in and apprehend them and force them into labor. So from all, all of this background on the Death Star, what we can learn from the hopes to get a Death Star or to possibly build one, and if it's possible or whatever, is that the future of the human race is in space. Because in order to achieve a weapon of this size, you have to have space, you have to have time, and you have to have money. Uh, Humans can't live forever on the planet. There'll be overpopulation. So let's move on from the Death Star. Um... Again, there's tons more content in the book. Check it out. Uh, Let's talk about how long ago and how far away the Star Wars universe existed. Because it says at the beginning of every movie that iconic line, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So it means it's in our universe. It's in our timeline. That's so cool. And that's one of the reasons why this fantasy feels real. Because you, you can... Suspend that belief because it tells you it's from a time that you can't know anything about. So, if the universe began 13.8 billion years ago from the Big Bang, 
then the amount of time to create necessary life or from or atoms would take 377,000 years. This we know. This is fact. So this would be the beginning of the necessary atoms like hydrogen and stuff like that, which we know that life is made. That's what life is made out of is uh, different properties like that. So when you're looking into space, it's limited to what we can observe. It's called observable universe. And it's limited by how far light has been able to travel to us since the beginning of the universe. So the way we can identify how long ago or how, and like how far away is by the way light travels because it's all about the relativity, the relativity of light speed to and from these places and how long it would take for life to be created. So how long exactly? Well, judging by, by those facts, it's approximately six and a half billion years ago and more than 13.4 billion light years away. I know it's kind of hard to comprehend, but this is just a really quick analysis of where, when and where this could exist. So I think that's really cool. Uh, the third thing I want to talk about is, could we ever become Jedi? Now, this one, it's a little less science-y and a little bit more evolution. So what we know it takes to be a Jedi is certain traits, the Force, midichlorians, and training. Now, not anyone can become a Jedi, right? At least uh, from what we're used to. I know the modern-day stories are trying to bend that a little bit, but if we're sticking to the majority of Star Wars stories, not anyone can just become a Jedi. It takes being of Force-sensitive lineage, uh, meaning that your family tree has at least someone who has the force gene. Uh, it takes a lifetime of training. I'll get into that in a minute. And it also forgoes certain tests to become a Jedi. So as far as the traits, we know force sensitives could be identified from birth or at a young age by showing a certain set of skills, such as seeing things before they happen having above-average intelligence, and also having an appreciation of life. We saw this in The Phantom Menace when they first stumbled across Anakin Skywalker. He could see things before they happen. And that's how Qui-Gon Jinn first had the idea that, hey, maybe this kid is Force-sensitive. And then he found out later that he has very high intelligence and he's very knowledgeable about science and the way the world works and his place in it. He, was, he had a, a learning curve. He was on a higher reading level, for lack of better words, than most people of his age group. And he also did have an appreciation for life. His mother, uh, we saw it a little bit with different creatures. He wanted everyone to be treated equally. If you remember in The Phantom Menace, it really did show that of him. And I think that's, for me, I don't think that part's in the book, The Appreciation of Life. This is kind of just from my point of view. I think if you want to be a Jedi, you have to appreciate 
all forms of it because you have to connect to your surroundings. Like we've heard in The Empire Strikes Back, it's an energy field that binds the universe together. And having an appreciation for it can help you connect to it and hone in on how to use it for using the Force. So let's talk about the Force. Uh, This might be something that a lot of you don't want me to talk about, but midi-chlorians, okay? Uh, Just for the sake of this being a science episode, let's talk about it because it explains the Force. So midi-chlorians give you the power of the Force. It's that symbiotic life form that lives in the cells and works in unison to pretty much create the universe. And people can learn how to control them over time as long as you're from that class of individual that has that Force-sensitive lineage uh, trait, now, you can have a high midichlorian count, but you have to know how to use it, and that, that's where the training comes in. Now, this is my theory. If you train with the Force your entire life, that makes you tap into the light side, and that's what makes you good in this Star Wars universe. You train at a young age without classical understanding, and that makes you a dark side user. Another same example of Anakin Skywalker. A lot of the council and the Jedi Council thought that Anakin was too old to begin the training, and that could be why he tapped into his dark side in later years of his life, because he didn't get the full understanding, and it was too uh, quick uh, of passage to be able to understand it, and there wasn't enough time or patience put in. Um, So my theory is that if you if you if you show signs from an early stage of life in after birth and you begin your training with masters and and group training and um, meditation and learn about the force uh, that's that's how you get on the path of being a light side user and once you're past that certain age which is obviously around that nine year old life uh, limit because that's I think how old Anakin was when they said he was too old. Um, you don't get that classic understanding, and that's what makes you go to the dark side. A quote from George Lucas says, I put the Force into the movies in order to try to awaken a certain kind of spirituality in young people. More of a belief in God than a belief in any particular religious system. So I really like that quote, too, because he's not saying that there's any one particular way of practicing. It's just that as long as you believe in something, then that's what gives you faith. And that's kind of how the force is. Everyone believes in the force, but it's how they approach it. And that's what makes them light, dark, gray, whatever. Um, So the fact that we could ever become Jedi may not mean that we could move rocks around or, you know, force jump or do mind control. But the fact that we can get to that level of, I guess, um, self-awareness is possible. Being aware of our surroundings, having the positive traits of... Uh, knowing what could happen in the future by the choices you make, having 
above average intelligence, just devoting yourself to study and learn and master things that you want to be good at and having an all around appreciation of life. Um, so I do believe we could become Jedi, but not in the way that we see in the Star Wars galaxy, but having involved science with future technology adapting, we could use certain machines to make things levitate, to implant ideas into people's minds. And eventually, yeah, maybe we could have a lightsaber, you know, anything's possible. So that's it for that one. Up next, I want to talk about how long until we are able to build intelligent machines like C-3PO. But first we have to talk about what C-3PO is, which is a robot. Um, the term robot ha- came, from, came from a Czech word, a uh, Czechoslovakian word um, of robots, which means forced labor. And it refers to featured characters that were thought of as a, a human-like machine. A robot's biggest presence is in manufacturing. The ability of repeating tasks quickly, efficiently, accurately. Recently, uh, robots like C-3PO have or are being designed for use in hospitals, homes, toys, military space. Things that require that repetitive action and accuracy that humans either cannot do or places we cannot go, such as space. The advantage of being a humanoid robot is to assist humans. So C-3PO is a protocol droid for relationships between sentient life forms. We know he's fluent in over six million forms of communication. And we also know that he's analog, which is really cool. He has had all of his knowledge uploaded to his database prior to being functionable. So if he wanted to access more information, he would have to re-upload there, there is no digital or wireless connection for him to access information. The closest thing that we have to a C-3PO is a butler bot by Honda, whose name is Asimo, A-S-I-M-O. It has eyes, it's battery-powered, It can push carts, carry trays. It can run four miles per hour. It can sense obstacles, and it can respond to audio. While I was reading this book, I was doing some additional research and watching some videos on ASMO, and it's actually a little scary that we're closer to a 3-3PO-like intelligent machine than we may think. I didn't even know about this, quote, droid until reading this book. And just to see its its functions and what it can do, it's nowhere near 
ready for mass production or being trusted alone. It's still in the early stages of development, but it is it can do a lot right now, and it's very... I highly recommend just going to YouTube, type in ASMO, and, or ASIMO, however you say it, and check it out. Uh, it's, it's really cool to see. And, but the thing is with AI, uh, so you need AI for, uh, to have a, a robot that is uh, similar to a C-3PO droid. So you need AI, uh, one that can adapt and understand, but most importantly, empathize as for it to understand human states and feelings and to share that intimate information and making itself a useful robot. C-3PO, having fluent, uh, being fluent in over 6 million forms of communication, would require him to understand the emotion behind the language. Um, because you, when you're interpreting something, you have to know its tone. So to have an AI that can understand that and to empathize with human uh, communication, that's one of the biggest components you would need to have for a C-3PO-like intelligent machine. We live in an age where smart tech surrounds us. As long as coding and programming allows it, I can see us having something like C-3PO as, at the most, obtainable goal to reach as a measure to Star Wars tech. In, uh, well, scientists speculate in a, within the next eight to ten years, robots will begin to exist with us and be a part of everyday life and to start to think and interact on their own. Eight to ten years. That's crazy. In that amount of time, I don't think it'll be equivalent to a C-3PO droid, but we can already see it now. You know, Siri, Alexa, Amazon, all this, all this stuff that, we, that can understand us and help our lives function a little quicker. Even cars, you know, self-driving, things like that. On top of that, uh, Elon Musk, I learned this the other day, is who's the creator of Tesla cars. He is creating a self-driving um, commercial truck um, to help with deliveries. And it is said that within the next 10 years, it'll take over the truck industry completely, which means that, you know, tons of employees would be out of jobs. And uh, the truck industry is, it's a huge part of America and I'm sure other parts of the world. But that's just an example of how close we're getting. And it, it may not be all fine and dandy because, you know, they're replacing our jobs. And at that point, what is their function? If we don't work, how do we continue to live out our lives? <clears throat> so having an intelligent machine like C-3PO, it's very realistic. Um... Let's move on to the next thing, which is probably something everyone knows about in the Star Wars universe. Carbonite, the famous um, f- froze freezing of Han Solo in, in The Empire Strikes Back. So can you really survive being frozen in carbonite? That's what I want to talk about. So to talk about this, we have to talk about cryonics, which is the preservation of human body in extreme cold temperature with 
healthy reviving. That is essentially what happened in the movie. The closest example to a real life is stories of people who have fallen into frozen lakes. They're submerged for an hour in ice before they're rescued. And those who survive, it's because the freezing water... The free water. The freezing water puts your body into a sort of suspended animation. That's what it's called. Which and that is when it slows down the metabolism and brain function to the point where they need almost no oxygen to survive. So, on top of that, there is science behind this to back it up to where eventually we could possibly have a similar thing. So, what is carbonite? It is a liquid substance made from carbon gas, which could change into a solid through rapid freezing. The side effects of this include hibernation sickness, uh, blindness and dizziness, things we've, we've seen and heard before in these sci-fi movies. And what we've seen in what happened to Han Solo after he is unfrozen. Remember, he was blind for a while. He was dizzy. Um, and those are side effects of hibernation sickness. So if you were to freeze someone... Here's what we know. On the surface, you would appear to be preserved. Now, this is in real life, if you were to freeze someone. On the surface level, you would appear to be preserved. But on a cellular level, the damage is extremely disastrous. The water inside your cells freeze. And when that happens, it causes it... When you freeze something, it expands. And if you expand it, it shatters. So in order to do... uh, carbon freezing without these effects the water from the cells would have to be extracted before carbonization so there's like there's a whole process because if you were to freeze yourself in carbonite that then the water would in your cells would expand and it would shatter and your entire insides would be completely discombobulated but the outside is fine that's the only problem with carbon freezing that we don't have that tech to be able to extract the water in our cells. Or, I'm sorry. And so while we can't freeze anybody, we still have cryonics. And cryonics is just the freezing of the body. But without any... We don't have the tech to be able to revive that at this time. And what's crazy is you can actually do that now. Um... You could do it yourself. There's body preservation organizations where you can pay $150,000 to freeze your whole body. Or you could just do your brain. Just freezing your brain is $50,000. And it's all on hope that one day someone can figure out how to clone or regenerate your body in the future. So right now, we have no idea how to do carbon freezing, but... It's possible, it's a stretch, but like I said, it would, it would take a lot of science and a lot of testing to figure out how this would work. So let's move on to the sixth topic here, which is the force. What exactly is the force? Well, it's that exciting element of Star Wars that makes you feel like anything is possible. It enables sorts of amazing and seemingly impossible things to be performed. It's not entirely a straightforward entity, 
to conquer or understand, but it's a powerful one. Like Yoda says back in Empire, it's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. For my ally is the Force, and a powerful ally it is. When you don't put your faith in something, you can see the limitations. And I think that's what the Force tries to acknowledge. Just putting your faith in something, and it can give you, uh, get you to a point where it makes size and strength inconsequential, and it just makes you a, a more powerful, more self-aware being. And the force is something that's always going to be there. The force is essentially trusting your instincts. My theory, which I'm bouncing off of from the book, is it's kind of like a sixth sense, a subconscious process of your brain. Um, the one example I will uh, give, which isn't from the book, this is actually from the Rebels, Star Wars Rebels, the animated show, uh, Kanan. Kanan at one point, spoilers if you haven't watched it, in season three, he loses his sight. I can't remember how exactly, but I think it was a lightsaber hit to the eye. It was either Darth Maul or Darth Vader. It's been a while since I've seen it. But he loses his ability to see, and he wears a bandana over his eyes for the rest of the two seasons and he uses the force to be able to see it's not through a sense of smell it's not through a sense of touch it's a whole nother aspect of his brain processing the environment around him by using this energy field that binds the galaxy together the force binds everything together it flows between everything that you can see. In reality, there is a true force similar to this called electromagnetic integration. I'm going to be referring to it as EM. So EM is the force that holds atoms together while also flowing through us as an electromagnetic radiation. This force is conveyed via photons by the unit of light. And it's what makes us see objects because photons travel to our eyes from said objects. And that's how we're able to see. <clears throat> Similar to how Kanan was able to see without using his eyes. So, so depending on how you're looking at it, the force is real. That's the, the closest example to a force by science standards. Now, if you want to look at it as a religious faith, um, it can also be an, another example. I've talked about this several times in the podcast um, on other episodes. But the force is just something you have to believe in. And if you can believe in it strong enough, then you can control it. And it can be used for light or dark purposes. So... That's about all I want to jump on with The Force for this segment. Next, I want to talk about Kylo Ren. This is from The Force Awakens. So how could Kylo Ren stop a blaster shot in midair? We all remember that scene. Now, 
first we got to talk about the blaster. What makes a blaster shot work? So blasters are said to deliver bolts of intense plasma energy that impact a with a severe uh, concussive blast. And they do this by converting gas into glowing particle beam beams capable of melting through targets. There are different sources of plasma in our universe, such as lightning, stars, and neon lights. So plasma, is, it's like a gas, and it will try to fill whatever space it's put in. So for plasma to be sent through the air, like a blaster bolt, it would have to carry some kind of magnetic field that confines it, similar to a bullet casing for gunpowder um, in our, our weapons. So in order for Kylo to freeze a blaster bolt, he would need something to contain it like a magnetic field. Now, there, are, there is one other option, and that's for him to be able to warp space and time. The surrounding world wasn't affected by him stopping the blaster bolt. So we know he wasn't using a warping of space or time. For him to be able to use one of those, if he warped space, for example, the gravitational uh, surroundings would all change and everyone would be thrown all over the place because if you affect one area, it affects the entire area surrounding it, the whole planet, actually. And if he was to use time to freeze it, the entire world would stop as well. But he was able to just stop the one area in which the blaster was in. And another reason why he wasn't able to use space to, to warp its uh, motion is because when he, the scene ends, the blaster bolt continues in the direction it was originally targeted. So that's an, if, if he was to stop it where it was and not affect the space around him, if once he let go, it would have just... It would have stayed in its place, but it would have evapor- like evaporated like gas, and it just would have expanded and filled the space around it. So he's using the force. It's something that you know we can't really tap into or use in our universe. And if he was in our universe, the way he would be able to do that is by having some kind of tech that could or like I said, create a magnetic field around that blaster bolt but again when he would let go it wouldn't continue on its targeted path it would just evaporate so that's when you kind of have to let your you have to suspend your belief when watching because that's probably the most unrealistic part of the force awakens maybe not the most unrealistic part but it's pretty close so on top of Jedi and Sith, let's talk about uh, the eighth thing, my eighth topic, and that is Jedi mind control. Is it possible? What do we know about mind control? Well, it was first introduced in the first Star Wars movie, and from there we learned that it only works on the weak-minded, and that you have to be trained to use it, but you can also be trained to not have it work on you. Now, something interesting about this is in The Force Awakens, Kylo Ren uses mind control on Poe Dameron. Does that mean Poe Dameron is weak-minded? It's got to be, right? Because 
it worked. He got the location of BB-8 in the map from him. So I don't think they really thought that through when they were fleshing out that scene because it kind of makes it seem like they're showing that Poe is a weak-minded fool. And that wouldn't make sense after watching The Last Jedi because, (laughs) you know, he was obviously not level-headed and he tried to take over his own crew and he was kind of crazy with his ideas on taking down the Death Star. So maybe maybe Poe is weak-minded. I wouldn't like that, but I just thought that was interesting to point out. And does that also mean Rey is too? And Kylo? Because they're all using it on each other. And... I, I don't know. I just, I think that some of the canon is getting a little mixed up in this new uh, trilogy. So I got two more things on this topic. And that is, I think the closest thing to Jedi mind control is hypnosis. So mind control is all persuasiveness and being obedient, right? So, I think hypnosis is the closest thing. The book touches on this too. It's the closest thing for Jedi mind control. And then also mind reading technology. I think a good example of that is a lie detector test. It's able to monitor our, our heart rate and identify if we're lying or not from there. So if you were able to do that on a hypnotic level, you could definitely tell if someone's lying or telling the truth. But to know their exact thoughts, that's when it gets a a little a little tricky. And again, we have to suspend that belief. Now, there's a passage from this book on Jedi mind control that I want to read because I thought it was really interesting, and it's all about insects. Um, so this is directly from the book. So let's see here. Let's see if I can find it. So if you have the book you can go to page 257. So we're, we're going to use an example of insects, specifically ants. So ants use up to 20 different pheromones to communicate. The key thing is that they do not question the messages. They just respond to them. The responses are essentially programmed in. This enables a queen ant to, particul- in, to use particular pheromones to control her workers. The success of a, the colony requires that the ants are susceptible to being controlled. It's the type of mind control that allows a colony to survive. On the whole, their compliance is more of a strength than a weakness. For some individual ants, though, compliance is at the heart of their impending doom. Weirdly, in the following case, it's not even another animal that's controlling them. So the spores of fungus called sordiceps unilaterals, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing that, changes the way ants of certain tribes perceive pheromones. These changes cause the ants to do exactly what the fungi needs. Infected ants walk up to the underside of a leaf and just wait for their for wait till they're until they die. The fungus subsequently grows out of the rotting ant's head to eventually send out spores to infect more ants. This is interesting because in its example of mind control across species, even though it only works on a particular tribe of ant, however, there are thousands of different types of fungi and each species on a particular species of insect, whether it's spiders, ants, grasshoppers, or moths. As mind control goes, this is an example uh, which is pretty gruesome, but its scope is very limited. 
The fungi do not choose the outcome. They merely create it as an evolutionary aspect of their survival. But what about more complex and varied forms of mind control? That, that's when we go back to hypnosis and compliance and persuasion. So I don't know. Tell me your thoughts on mind control. Have you ever been hypnotized? I've kind of always wanted to be. <clears throat> you see videos and stuff, and I, I don't believe it, only because I haven't ever witnessed it in person and or experienced it myself. But I think it's possible, you know, if you go to be hypnotized, you have to go into it wanting to be hypnotized, right? That's when you're most susceptible to it. If you go in like, ah, oh, it's not real. <laughs> Watch this guy make a fool of himself as he tries to control me. Then you're not going to be controlled. So, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Jedi mind control, if it was possible, I would uh, definitely use it to uh, get more food at the grocery store for free. That was the first thing that came to my head. And it'd be like, you know, get a bunch of groceries, go to the checkout line, and the lady's like, your total is $358. You don't want to give me, <laughs> you don't want me to pay you. You just want to give it to me for free. And they'll be like, whoa, all right. <laughs> or I would use it to uh, get more listeners to rate my podcast. Let's see if it'll work. <clears throat> when you're done listening to this episode, you will give me a five-star rating and suggest it to all of your friends and family. Okay, we'll see if it works. So, guys, that's all I want to talk about for the, for the book, The Science of Star Wars. There's, there's tons more things we could talk about in this book. If you want to hear more, just tell me. Let me know if you want to hear more. I could do a part two. Totally cool. But again, the book is called The Science of Star Wars. The subtitle is The Scientific Facts Behind the Force, Space Travel, and More by Mark Brake and John Chase. I will tag them both in this episode if they have links to be tagged at. And I hope they listen to it. I think the book was fascinating, and I'm probably going to read it again. There's tons of stuff in here, guys. It, I, my copy has post-it notes sticking out of it everywhere <laughs> that's possible. And, um, yeah, and, you know, to the authors, Mark and John, if you're listening a I know I probably interpreted some of the things incorrectly, but just know I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book and it really brought so much joy to my life. And it gave me something to talk about on this podcast. So I don't know if you listen, shoot me a message. Maybe we can have you on as a special guest and talk more about the science of Star Wars or just about, you know, our love for it in general. I'm glad to see there's books like this out there. I have tons more, such as like strategy, dharma, and um, uh, music of Star Wars. I got, I got it all, and uh, I'll be happy to do other episodes of it. Just let me know what you guys think, and tell me your opinions on some of these topics, like mind control, uh, the blaster shot being stopped in midair, the force, and carbonite. You know, just let me know what you guys think. I do want to close with some thoughts on what's going on with the current state of Star Wars. So, you know, right now, it's been four months since we had a Rise of Skywalker trailer, or 
or anything, anything announced for the new episode nine. And I want to know, this segment is called, Where is Star Wars? Where is it? <laughs> the marketing. They said they were going to market this movie like, like nothing else. And they were right, because I have, <laughs> there's no marketing for this movie. They released a trailer, and that's it for four months. There's been nothing else new. There hasn't been, and you haven't even seen anything, any of the, like the older toys or older promotion left up from uh, The Last Jedi, especially not even Solo. I just want to know where it is. I understand Disney has a lot of properties, and they got a lot of movies that are coming out this year, and it, they're kind of cannibalizing themselves with uh, their entertainment. You know, they had to finish the Marvel campaign for Endgame, and then they had Lion King, and now they got Frozen coming up, and then Star Wars. It's like they don't, ha- they don't really have time for all of it because it's all under their umbrella, and they're probably overwhelmed. I just, the only place you're really hearing about Star Wars Episode Nine right now is from websites that are trying to give you clickbait or people like me who have a podcast on it or people that are speculating. But other than that, there's no real news and there's no real hype right now. I'm so confused. You remember when The Force Awakens came out and it was literally everywhere a year before? A year before even the trailer. You know, we had BB-8s rolling around and all this crap. And we didn't know what anything was, but we were eating it up like chocolate-covered candy. And now it's like, where is everything? Forbes magazine just released an article. Uh, I forget the, the guy who wrote it, but whatever. It says that Star Wars Episode Nine won't beat the Lion King's numbers this year. That's insane. Lion King just broke a billion. It, the, Forbes magazine doesn't think that the lion. Oh, sorry, that Star Wars is going to pass a billion dollars this year. That seems crazy. I think Forbes is thinking the same thing. Where's the marketing? It, at this point, they got like four months, three months to market this movie to the fullest. We still need two more trailers. Or I'm sorry, three because the first one was just a teaser, right? So we need. Three more trailers, and we need TV spots. We need posters. We haven't even gotten an official poster yet. Isn't that crazy? Like, where is it? I really don't want this movie to do bad. I want it to be the biggest movie of all time. I want to go to the theater and there be, like, no seats left. I I don't want to walk in and have the same thing that happened with Solo. I go in there, and there's five people watching the movie. And I was there opening night. There was five people in my theater. And there was no cheering, there was no hype, there was nothing. I want this to be like Endgame. I want it to be huge, big, bad, awesome. Some trailer analytics, and this scares me too. So the teaser for The Rise of Skywalker has about 30 million views total. Okay. The Lion King trailer, which came out either a week before or a week after, has 125 million views. We are living in a time where the Lion King live-action remake, which has, like, no emotion in the movie, has more views than a Star Wars movie. That's crazy. Now, the Rise of Skywalker trailer was distributed to many outlets 
the trailer was to many outlets at the same exact time, so it's hard to get an exact number, but it's drastically lower than the Lion King's trailer analytics. You remember when Bob Iger said he wanted to slow down Star Wars? I think that's a great idea, but it happened way too soon. <laughs> you, they should have focused it on this trilogy uh, solely and not Solo and Rogue One or any other project they're developing. They should have just done these three and then after slow down. But I think they're kind of struggling with what to do to make this movie big. I mean, within 10 years, they made it so that Star Wars is kind of growing old. Isn't that a little odd? Within 10 years, they kind of made it so that it's not interesting. And I think what the problem was that every year they were trying to do a movie. Um, I'm going to jump on that in a minute, too. You know, the fact that we were kind of flooded with Star Wars content. So, but why I think the slowdown on Star Wars movies is a good idea is because we can't have a movie every year. You need certain things in Star Wars. You know, you need... What I'm, trying, what I'm saying is Star Wars is limited. You need certain things in Star Wars. You need stormtroopers, you need Death Stars, you need lightsabers, you need all of that. And it's limited to what you can do. It's a huge galaxy, but it's, there really isn't much you can do in it. It's all already been explored. You have to stick to the main themes of Star Wars. You know, Marvel can do it because... What Marvel does is every movie is about a new set of characters. And it does take place in its own universe, but there's no limitations, right? They don't they all don't have one weapon that they use. Star Wars has one weapon that they use. It's you either got a blaster or you got a lightsaber. You can either shoot it or you can block it. Marvel has so many different types of weapons. They got an Iron Man suit, they got a shield, they got guns, they have um they have gods that can mold things from, you know, just the universe, like their special powers. So it does, I know it doesn't, it's hard to believe that Star Wars is limited, but it really is. There's not much you can do with it. And Disney has too much on their plate at one time. Star Wars is limited. It's a small universe and you can't do much with it. Now, the way you can get around it is do what the Clone Wars did. The Clone Wars TV show did it properly. They had so many characters, each one had individual arcs, and they stuck within the universe, but they had like real-life stories inside of this universe. And the lightsabers and the guns were just like a side thing. If anybody on here has not watched The Clone Wars, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's so good, and it can really show you how to expand this universe. But instead what they're doing and why it's getting old is because they're giving us the same things we've already seen and they're not even doing it the proper way force awakens a lot of people it's it's a new hope it's the same exact movie there's nothing new it's limited in uh the last jedi it was like oh what new force power can we show I mean, we've, we've already seen tons of Force powers. Give us some kind of uh, character real-life problems. And the, the blasters and the clone, the, the stormtroopers, they're trying, they, oh, they made it red this time. It's like, 
they're just they're taking these nostalgic things and they're trying to like you know turn the EQ on it just slightly to the left and it's not it's not creative. It's uh I think they're creatively having some problems. And I think it's part mostly because the people working there or at least the people in charge of the stories and creativity don't really understand what they're working with. They're basing it all on nostalgia. And also they're they're bringing in the wrong people to base shows on. Cassian Endor is having his own TV show. Why? He was the most least interesting character in Rogue One. Do you want to know why they're bringing him in to giving his own, his own TV show? Well, it's because his best friend is K2SO, the funny, lovable droid that we all well, probably was one of the best characters in in the Rogue One, and he didn't even have a personality. <laughs> they're only making the show one so he can come in, two so they can uh, sh- give um, help out their Latino audiences. And this is a fact, because they're trying to broaden their characters in Star Wars, and they they just they, they got Diego Luna and they got um, Pedro Pascal for The Mandalorian, and they're having a lot of Latin um, characters now. And my theory is because what is outside of the U.S. the number one country? with uh, the highest uh, Star Wars uh, fan hype. Well, it is Spain, Italy, and Mexico. All <laughs> very similar places. That's uh, number two in uh, fandom popularity. Uh, I think they're just trying to service that, and I don't think they're doing it the right way. I mean, I would... I don't mind having a Candy and Andor or a Cassie and Andor show, but he's he was the least interesting character in Rogue One. I mean, I would have loved to seen one on, on Donnie Donnie Yen, whatever his name is, the uh, the Chinese actor who played the blind guy who believed in the Force. At least then you could have the Force in your TV show. Like, what's the Cassian show even going to be about? I mean, he's he's just so boring. I'm so sorry to anyone who likes that character. Huh. <sighs> The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. That's a story for another time. I'll talk about it maybe next week. But there is a way that this show can go terribly wrong, and that's because of the history we have from Legends books on Mandalore, the Clone Wars and Rebels stories on Mandalore and Mandalorian culture. And it is great that Dave Filoni is involved, but um, we'll talk about that next time because I'm past my time period for this, uh, this episode. So, uh, guys, thank you so much. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the science of star Wars segment. I have been wanting to kind of go over that book for a while now, and it's not really a review, a book review because, well, (laughs) it's all facts and, um, it's a nonfiction. So again, highly recommend the book. Go check it out. The science of star Wars by Mark Brake and John chase. Uh, fantastic read. I really hope you enjoyed it. Tell me your thoughts. Let's see 
what kind of news we're going to get this week on Star Wars, and you know I'll be covering it when it comes to Monday. So you guys have a great rest of your week. May the Force be with you, and please share with your friends. Later.